Food for Thought on News Talk 760 WJR is presented by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state. Here's your host, Dr. Phil Knight. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening. Some time ago, Jerry Brisson and I were guests on the Paul W. Smith Show. Paul W. was kicking off the Pure Michigan Ag Tour, and our sponsor, Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan, wanted to highlight the work of our food bank network and ask if the broadcast could be held at the Gleaners Community Food Bank. It worked out beautifully, and Jerry and I sat down with Paul W. and discussed our work of creating food security across Michigan. We touched on the food supply chain, how a good economy impacts our work, and how close we are to creating a solution to solving hunger in Michigan. It was a great time with Paul W., who was visibly moved by our conversation. We want to recap that interview and unpack those three key thoughts from our time with Paul W. We'll be right back, where we'll play the interview for you and discuss those main ideas on this edition of Food for Thought. Get in touch with the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Visit fbcmich.org. We're back here on Food for Thought. Thanks for listening, everyone. So, uh, Jerry, thanks for hosting us a few weeks ago at Gleaners with Paul W. And um, I just really thought, first of all, Paul W. is such a gifted interviewer. Yeah, no question. But I just thought that that time together with him at Gleaners was a pretty powerful uh, interview and we got to share in our Jerry and Phil type manner, kind of back and forth with him, some of the very key aspects of our work in trying to create this food security across Michigan. Yeah, and it's a good reminder of what questions people have. You know, I mean, Paul W. just kind of sincerely said, here's some of my questions. And so, you know, it was important and I think worth having our listeners hear some of these questions because they probably have some of the same ones. So why don't we take a listen? Yeah, so here's one of Paul W.'s first questions to us, and I'll just give you a hint. It was about Chiquita Bananas. We're at Gleaners Community Food Bank at one of their uh, locations here, uh, and uh, Jerry Brisson is here, the president of uh, Gleaners. Jerry? Great to be here, and this is where it all started. The original food bank in Michigan where Gene Gagne, who had been a Jesuit and farmed for the Jesuits, came and said, you know, we can make this system better. The Archdiocese and the Capuchins and Salvation Army and a bunch of other people said, you're right, and here we are in the place where it all started. This is a big facility because we've broadcast from here before, but I can't tell where. (laughs) Also here with us, Phil Knight, who you listen to uh, as host of WJR's Food for Thought show. Nice to see you, Phil. Nice to have you here. It's great to be back with you. Let me just say before I forget, God bless both of you. Oh, thank you. For what you do. Well... Appreciate it. It's astonishing, and you remind us of of the needs. But I got to ask one question. It's been killing me since f- five o'clock this morning. I'm pretending I got here at five. Morris wrote you like that. <laughs> In case my boss is listening. You know when I was here at four thirty <laughs> this morning. But when I walked in. There are cases and cases and cases of Chiquita bananas. How does something like that come about? You know, uh, the food supply chain from the farm all the way to post-consumer with food drives 
is where we get food from. It's the entire food supply chain. So different things happen in the food supply chain at different times, and that's our job, to stay on top of what's going on out there and make sure that before food goes to waste, we grab it and get it to people who so, need it. So, so you literally stay on top of this and say, well, you got 100 cases of bananas. If you're not going to use them or if they're coming to the best sold-by date, can we have them? Absolutely right. And that's just and one they look of beautiful. many examples. I mean, they look, oh. they're wrapped beautifully in the box. Everything looks beautiful. You know, I'll Thank tell you. you what. The produce people that we work with know they got to turn that stuff fast to make it good. And Mastronardi in particular has been amazing to us in terms of peppers and cucumbers and tomatoes and really fresh, beautiful beautiful stuff. It's as good as you see in the store, and that's what we serve the community. I mean, it really is important for people to know, I think, that it's not just cast-offs, that there's a lot of perfectly good food you'd be so happy to get, and that's our goal, of course, because food that people want and need is what we want to get out there. I'm so happy that Gleaners Community Food Bank is getting that food, rescuing that food, and getting that food to people who are hungry. You're getting it into the bellies that need it. And to the tune of 43 million pounds last year, and we're going to beat that this year. Unbelievable. So those boxes were kind of crazy. I mean, if you've not been in a food bank before, uh, I remember bringing somebody to Gleaners years ago, and they walked in and they called somebody and said, oh my gosh, it looks like Costco. (laughs) (laughs) Because of the size and the size and the the racking and everything. But here, I mean, that just illustrates. Uh, and I think a lot of people understand, well, how do you, how do you get food in order to distribute? I mean, you're talking about 43 million pounds just in gleaners alone, but I know statewide it's like 182 million from all of our food banks. Yeah, and I think the other thing that was really clear from Paul is... Um, until you've been at the food bank, it's hard to appreciate how much food that really is. Then you see all these boxes and and the size of the place and go, oh my gosh, it's not a pantry. And a lot of people, when they hear food bank, what they think in their head is food pantry where consumers come. Maybe, you know, you'll see 20 people at a time at some of the bigger pantries, right? Right. Well, in our facility, I mean, it's 90,000 square feet and it's food, you know, floor to ceiling. Right. So a lot of times that gets a reaction from people. And this, and the next thing people say is, where do you get all this food from? Right. Once they realize how big it is, the next thing they say is, where, where does it come from? So, so, I mean, that's changed over the years, I must say. Um, at the beginning of food banking, almost all of the food came from the manufacturing part of the food supply chain. So Tyson and ConAgra and and Kraft and those big food companies, um, you know, they were still creating their um, their food processing systems mm-hmm. and kicking off a certain amount of waste as a part of that process. Right. Well, the raw material was the least expensive part of the process, so they were getting other things figured out first, which meant there was a lot of food that was getting manufactured, like cereal, too. Kellogg right. would be another great one. Um, and so we we took advantage, if you will, of the waste <laughs> in the food supply system to get food to people that needed it. Right. And that was, at the time, over 90% of all our food. Now, that food is only really about 15% 
of the food wow, we distribute. What a right? drop. So so now, you know, one of the biggest sources of food is directly from farms. Right. Now that's really good news because the closer you are to the beginning of the food supply chain, the less waste there's been in the whole process, right? Right. So getting food directly from farms. Forty two percent of our distribution last year was fresh produce. Some of that was donated and some of it was purchased. In fact, we purchased over 5.3 million pounds of produce last year alone. Now, at 12 cents a pound. Hmm. So, I mean, it's healthy. It's fresh. It's what people want. Um, so, we talk about farms. We talk about food manufacturers. Retail. Our good friends at, you know, uh, Walmart and Kroger and Meyer. You know, the big stores. They certainly have food that they need to cycle through. And our friends at Forgotten Harvest do a great job of rescuing a lot of that. But there's other food that we get from them as well. And so, combined, that makes up another pretty big segment of, our, of where food comes from. And we have food drives. Food drives provide millions of pounds of food every year. And the National Association of Letter Carriers has their food drive, right. which nationwide does 70 million pounds of food in one day. That's so, crazy. you know, all really, when I say all the way from farm to fork, that's what I really mean. It's, it's food across that entire spectrum of the food supply chain. So one area that we've highlighted recently on the show has been this campaign of milk means more. So I think that Ken Nobus from the Michigan uh, Milk Producers Association, we had him on the show. And then we recently heard from how people are, uh, dairy farmers are being, are using their surplus and they're giving it so that, because milk, as you say, is one of the most requested items that we have. And continues to be. And of course, part of the reason is it's so perishable, it doesn't get donated very often. So milk and the United Dairy Industry of Michigan and uh, the, our, our friends at... at uh, Dairy Farmers of America. Exactly right. Yeah. They're all helping us provide that to people, and, and we've talked to a few of them, actually. We actually. So um, maybe this would be a great time to maybe hear from one of them on why they're donating so well and so much to us here in the Food Bank Network. Here with Nate Pyle. And Nate, thank you for partnering with us and your generous donations of milk that help uh, feed hungry children, and uh, we're so excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me on, and it's uh, an honor to talk to you guys, and we appreciate what you guys are doing for the same effort. Well, we couldn't do it without great folks like yourself that's coming alongside of us. Tell us a little bit about your operation and, and where you're located and, and how you came about being such a tremendous donor to this program. We are located in New Zealand, Michigan, so over on the west side of the state. Pile Dairy Farm is our farm, and it's uh, my brother and myself and our families and my parents. And we milk about 150 cows on our farm. We uh, send our milk to a co-op called Michigan Milk Producers Association. We are just a group of farmers who have made a decision to try and do something towards childhood hunger and food insecurity. Well, it makes a huge difference. It's one of the most requested items from the families we serve is milk. 
and it's rarely donated because it's it, it's uh, highly perishable, right? And it's heavy, and you know, yep. so you got to know how to do uh, with milk. And so the partnership that we have with you is extremely important to this because it it's opened up so many more opportunities for us to get this healthy, nutritious food out to the families that are asking for it. Nate. You and your brother and your family, we just can't thank you enough for being such great partners. And um, you're just a great example of what's right with Michigan, and we appreciate you being our partner. He's Nate Pyle, and he's one of the members of the Michigan Milk Producers Association that's partnering with the Food Bank Council of Michigan and our Milk Means More project. Thanks, Nate, for being with us. Thank you. We'll be back in just a moment. It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight on WJR. We're back here on Food for Thought. Jerry Brisson, CEO and President of Gleaners Community Food Bank and the Chair of the Food Bank Council of Michigan Board, for which I work as the Executive Director. Dr. Phil here. Jerry, one of the things that came out of the interview I thought was one of the more uh, interesting things with Paul W. was uh, when he asked, really, and we discussed our take on the impact that the economy has on our work. Now, understandably so, if the economy is bad, you understand that there would be greater need for our services. But our economy is pretty darn good, and there's still a need for our services. Yeah, the thing that balances the scales there is that we've never solved the problem. Mm. So if the problem were completely solved, then when the economy got better, well, you'd have less of a problem to solve, and so you would need less. Right. As the economy got worse, you'd have more of a problem to solve, so you'd need more. But the problem is we've never solved more than half the problem. Mm-hmm. So when you look at then when the economy gets better, you can't expect that we need less. Because all that's happening is instead of solving 50% of the problem, maybe we're solving 60% of it now. But there's right. still 40% left unsolved. And so... The the challenge in an environment where the economy's good is to try to tell people, hey, yeah, the economy's good, but there's still a lot of people that need help because they never got help before, right? There's still a huge number of people not getting any help from the emergency food that we can distribute because there just isn't enough of it yet. So part of our challenge is to find sustainable sources of funding so we can have a safety net that reaches all the people who are food insecure. And that, of course, is the reason for the show, to highlight the ways that we're doing that. Well, one of the comments I made in there was to talk about the types of jobs that are available. But it's also the types of people who, in in regard to how their qualifications are, and how that matches up with the jobs that are available. That's a challenge, too, that affects our work and that of the economy as well. And without you, Phil Knight, and your WJR Food for Thought show on Sundays at 9 o'clock, we wouldn't know a lot of this stuff. We wouldn't know a lot of the need that's out there. Well, I appreciate it, Paul. It's a, it's a privilege to work with the team here at WJR. And Jerry and I in our show are trying to change the conversation about food insecurity. For example, what's the face of who's hungry in Michigan? Well, 47% of the people who come to our network across the state are employed. Say that again. So 47% of the people who come to our network are employed. And now, that's it's not, a, a whole different picture than what people think. Right. It's just, it's just 
you know, that's who's hungry. And then, then when you bring children into this, um, mm-hmm. what we were at Jerry's uh, golf event the other weekend, and and uh, the folks who sponsor that, Andiamo's, she stood up and said, uh, "There's two words that should never go together: children and hunger." That's the truth. That's an absolute truth. And really important to talk about as the economy is getting better. And I, and I do want to put in a plug for the economy. There is nothing better than a good economy to feed people. It's how people want to be fed. It's the best way to do this work. There's no question about it. But the economy doesn't work the same as it did even 30 years ago when I got into this work. It, it used to be if someone was employed, they were pretty much guaranteed to be food secure. Not so true anymore. So even as the economy is getting better, we've seen hundreds of thousands of people not need support now who needed it just a few short years ago. But still, there's hundreds of thousands left that need our help. In a sense, Jerry and Phil, are you saying that when the economy is going well and things are humming, we, the other people who don't necessarily need your services, thank God, there but for the grace of God go I, right. might think that everybody else is doing okay, and you're saying, no, no, wait a second, don't let up just because you're doing well, just because the economy is humming, there is still a whole bunch of people that need help. Well, 37 years ago, then-President Reagan said the best social program is a job. And as Jerry said, there was a direct correlation between being employed and being food secure. Now, today... Because of the types of jobs and the great economy we have, but the types of jobs that are available, there's a disconnect between employment and being food secure. So a lot of people that are coming to see us, they're not working one job, they're working two. And still need the help. And and how, here's what we don't have a study on that I wish we would do, I want us to do, is what's the emotional toil on a person that gets up and goes to work every day, Paul, knowing that it will never be enough when you think you're doing all the things you're supposed to be doing right right these are the things we were raised to believe right i got a job i got two jobs and i can't feed my family right it's 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 just unacceptable and that's where we start it's unacceptable i agree the economy is a complex idea And there's a lot of pieces in it. Um, Some of those pieces have to do with even things like immigration. And how does immigration affect the economy? And there's lots of debate about it and people with very clear, different points of view. So whenever you're talking about something like the economy and how complicated that idea is, you have to start with some very basic understanding of not everybody equally benefits from a good economy. Right. Now, that's a complex idea, again, but it's just true. Well, I think the simple thing, to put the cookies on the lower shelf, is people would expect when the economy is good, there would be less of a need for our services. And there is, except we need to keep doing more because we've never met the whole need. Right. Well, and it is the difference, again, as we've highlighted on the show before, between being eligible for emergency benefits and being self-sufficient. And there is a gap between those two, and we know that that starts at $11.50 an hour on the wage scale. So, I mean, all of that contributes to why people still need help during a good economy. And I think one of the most important things that we say about this is that um, that help that we give, that safety net that we create, doesn't just help the person. 
it helps the whole economy. It, you know, when, when, and, and we've, we talked to Rob Fowler from the Small Business Association several times, and he would tell you, you know, small businesses, even in a good economy, struggle too. So they can't always afford to pay what would be a living wage. Even if they intend to, they just don't have the profits to do it. So these programs that people use so that they can balance employment and the safety net and come up with enough income to be sufficient for their household, these are all really um, complementary. It's not people are on the dole or they're working. It's that people are using all of these resources, both work and the the components of the safety net, to have a standard of living that their household can really thrive on if possible, especially the kids. Absolutely. And I think that's where the focus has to continue to be, that the kids are innocent. And, you know, and then the bigger question for us is, what kind of culture, what kind of society do we want to live in? And it's not, um, a, a, well, I should say it is a moving target. Mm-hmm. You know, things evolve and things change. And the, the international workforce puts downward pressure on wages. Well, that's a real thing. So yeah. you can't just solve that by hoping that businesses can suddenly pay more. It's not necessarily going to be the only answer. Now, is our wages part of the answer? Clearly, they have to be, and they're a really important part of the answer. And you made that point in the interview. Exactly right. And so, but we have to we have to come up with the whole answer. And I think food well, first. Food first, doctor. Yeah, food first. That's it. Well, as you started to say, as long as there are people willing to work at pennies on the dollar in other places around this country, and businesses are or taking advantage of that, then there's a, that is an impact on the cost of living and the, the standard of living here in America. Right. And so those are, again, difficult decisions. There's many points of view about them. But what I can tell you is this. If you let kids languish because you haven't figured it out, you've made a huge mistake. Well, th- th- there's no way that they should pay the price for any of these decisions. That's just unacceptable. I agree. So he's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. This is Food for Thought. You're listening to us on WJR, and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight. Brought to you by Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're back here on Food for Thought at WJR. We're recapping an interview that Jerry Brisson and I did. Jerry Brisson, that's how Paul W. said it. I like it. I, I do, like too. It. I, 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 and he likes saying it, too. So it was fun. Uh, so we did an interview with him on his morning show at Gleaners a few weeks ago, and uh, we're recapping that uh, for you. Here's the part that we talked about. How close are we? to solving the problem. Thank you for the work you guys do day in and day out. I think it's making a difference. We it could, is we making do a difference. And you asked a question earlier on the show, is this problem really solvable? Are we within shooting distance, right? Right. And the answer is not yet, but we're getting closer every day. We have really smart people from healthcare, from the business community, from education, and we're re-looking at all these systems and asking questions like, if a whole school is food secure, How does that change the educational environment? Not just the child, but every household. Because if a child's growing up in an extremely stressful environment that's permeated by not knowing if they're going to have something to eat, it changes how they learn. We got to get the, we got to, 
re-ask these questions until we get this right because we know we're not going to solve education if we don't solve this issue. And we'll leave it at that because that's a great way to put it. Jerry Brisson, Gleaners Community Food Bank President, and, of course, Phil Knight. Thanks, guys. So, thought leader, (laughs) (laughs) expert, Um, and really, that's true, and I say that, you know, I mean, I I really do mean that. You are a thought leader in this work, and uh, how close are we? So, you know, one way to think of that is halfway. You know, we're about halfway based on what we know the need is. Um, But another way to think about that is to just reflect for a minute about the whole food supply system over time. It wasn't until the 1950s, it was 1954, 1956, when tractors outnumbered horses and mules on farms in the United States. 1953. Okay, there we go. There you go. I was pretty close. I don't don't hear good, but I listen well. (laughs) So 1953. (laughs) So if we just start with that. Until 1953 and the advent of tractors, um, or I should say the emergence of them as the main way that farmers tilled the soil and such, and then you add ammonia-based fertilizers to that, which, which was right in that same time frame. Those are being developed and they start being used and the production of food per acre starts to shoot way up. Until that happened, there was no regular surplus of food in the world. In other words, we had feast or famine. In good years, people had a lot of food. In bad years, people had hardly any food. Of course, we know a lot of the immigration in our own country was due to those famines around the world. And so now you have this possibility of enough food to feed the world consistently. Because we haven't, didn't have the abundance of food until the late, mid to 1950s. And food banks didn't really start until the late 70s, 77 and onward. I mean, Gleaners is one of the oldest, is the oldest in Michigan and one of the oldest in the nation. And you're 41 years old. Right. If I do my math, that's 1977. Right. So we haven't really been at this very long. Right. I mean, it's 40 years, 41 years, so that's some time. But it took a bunch of that time just to capture the food that was going to waste and 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 do the right things with it, right? Right. Develop our network of partners. You know, Gleaners alone has over 500 partners. There's over 3,000 partners. And by partner, we mean agencies that help us distribute food directly to people statewide, right? So it took time to develop those systems. And those systems are very efficient. 97 cents of every dollar going to the mission using tens of thousands of volunteers. I mean, it's really, I will tell you, I've talked to the founder of Gleaners many times. Gene's a good friend, and he has said to me, there's no way he could have imagined where we are today when he first started this. Wow. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a tremendous success. So if you approach the work from that point of view, that we have really learned this part of the work incredibly well, much better than anyone could have imagined, and it got us halfway to the solution. Okay, now let's get the other half. And the other half isn't going to come in exactly the same way because the food supply is different. Because even food manufacturers are a lot more efficient because farmers continue to get even better at what they do. And we have so many more insights into health and nutrition and the importance of fresh and healthy food that we didn't know when we started this years ago. So things keep evolving, which means the solution keeps evolving. The good news is there's a lot of people that care and that really want to solve this problem that can be part of the solution. And when we start breaking it down to the next steps, 
we can, there is a path. So what I said to Paul is we're not there yet, but we're getting there we're step close. by step, step yep. by step. When when we start talking with healthcare and and educators and Employers. Employers. I mean, you know, people really know that they benefit, not just the people who get the food, but but the those businesses, those parts of our economy and part parts of our society benefit in a big way when this problem is solved. You can start discovering, well, what percentage of the safety net should be cover be covered by healthcare? Well, we don't know that answer, but we know it's the right place to start asking. Right. Well, and the other problem that we face is if between the, the, the safety net provided by primarily by the government and by charity, and we're meeting half the need, it's going to be really difficult to scale charity up to that second half. So that's why it has to become something more of an integrated approach within the business community. Right. So finding out who wins when we win, when this problem gets solved, is a way that we're approaching this whole idea of creating a blueprint that would create food security across the state. And I don't think it'll take another 40 years because we're just a lot better than we were when we started. Right. I mean, you know, when you start these ideas, everything is new. Everything you have to figure out from scratch. Well, we don't have to figure out everything from scratch anymore. We right. have a lot of the answers now, and we can use what we do well along with the new things that we know we need to do to make the system better quicker. So, 10 years, Phil, that's my that's my uh, I'll oh. throw that down. Wow. I think I like in 10 it. years we will see a significant part of this problem solved that isn't solved today. That's awesome. You heard that on Food for Thought right here. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight. We're going to be back in just a moment. It's Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight, presented by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Once again, here's Dr. Phil Knight. Jerry, um, that was a great interview with Paul. Paul W. Smith. It was super to have him at one of our food banks, your food bank at Gleaners. Uh, you know, and it's, I guess it just reminds me that when Paul does his, God bless you for the work you're doing, that there's a lot of people that really care about this issue. Yeah. And it's very important to us to hear it too. You know, yeah. there's a lot to this work and it, it never hurts to hear somebody say thank you, does it? I no. mean, we can't say it enough, and we'll say it to you who keep listening to us and taking this journey with us. Thank you. Thank you for being there, for you know, continuing to believe and to help us really teach the community that this is a solvable problem, and we just need to keep at it, and we are going to go places. Yeah. keep. Uh, well, we're going up. I think somebody says onward and upward uh, here. There is someone I know that says that a yeah, lot. Yes, yeah, indeed. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> So just, you know, uh, Paul talking about the show, Paul W. talking about their show, and, and uh, he, you know, plugs the show for us quite often. He, I think he genuinely appreciates the show, and he, and he expressed that. So, you know, we're sitting here thinking about, would we listen to us? <laughs> you know? Well, I listen to you, doctor. Yeah. I just want to make that clear. Well, I listen to you. So, okay, so... There, there we have our two listeners. I, but really, I mean, why should people continue to listen to Food for Thought? You know, I, I, as I think about our shows, you know, there's three reasons to keep listening. You know, the people that we have on, 
the progress updates that we give and the continued evolving perspective about how this problem can be solved. And, you know, just think about the people. We've had 138 or so guests so far and more to come. And coming up, we're going to have people like Tom Chalani. He owns many businesses. He's, you know, he's an entrepreneur and a exceptionally successful guy who cares about this issue. And we're going to get his perspective about why this issue is important to solve. Larry Burns from the Children's Hospital of Michigan Foundation, a phenomenal guy. He leads that organization and they're doing so much to help children and they want Food First to be part of what they do. And Susan Hawkins, uh, the Senior Vice President of Population Health at Henry Ford Health System, you know, they're finishing some pilots like in the next several months, we'll have her back on to talk about what did we learn from those pilots and where will that take us? So that's you're talking about business, children, and health care. And those are three areas that we feel like we have to grow in in order to meet the second half of this need. So a good reason to keep listening. Progress is being made, and you can be right here with us. In addition to that progress, we have an election coming up in the state of Michigan. I'm sure you're out there going, of course we know that, but what an opportunity. We have interviewed both candidates for governor on this show, mm-hmm. and both are really food-first people that want to see this issue addressed in a more comprehensive and better way. Um, Obviously in different ways and obviously from different perspectives, but we are very hopeful that this election is going to see some really good progress for Food First. Yeah. Well, we've had Gretchen on the show and we've had uh, Mr. Schutte on the show. So Bill and Gretchen, both here, they've shared their perspective. And, you know, I agree with you. I'm really hopeful for this election. The legislature has come alongside of us in several different ways and several different projects with uh, the mass funding for the uh, Michigan Agricultural Surplus System and also for the IQF project and the individually quick frozen food that we're rescuing from processors. That's leading us to lots of different conversations and that's all very important because it, it rises and falls on leadership. Exactly right. And again, you know, there's lots of reasons and and, uh, opinions that people have about who they'd rather have. But I can tell you both the leaders running for governor right now care about this issue. And that's important to us. It's very important. And, you know, that that's that's progress. And then, you know, the perspective that we offer here on food for thought. I mean, it is a source of changing the conversation about this. What's the word you use? An in- intractable problem. Well, thus far intractable, right? We haven't figured out how to solve this yet, but we're starting to solve it, and we're starting to turn an intractable problem into a solvable one. And that's pretty exciting. So that perspective, again, that perspective comes from all these people. It comes from the progress that we're making, but it also comes from a fundamental belief that people want to see this problem solved. Every major religion in the world says feed hungry people. Every single one. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of power. And don't you say, Jerry, that families are meeting 60% or thereabouts of the need they have in the families that we're serving? They're meeting, they're meeting about 60% of their own need, and, and then we're coming alongside of them with other programs to meet the balance of that need. Well, yeah, so complicated issue there, and when you start throwing out numbers, I want to be careful. I would say this, that 
Well, that's why I said you quote. You said that, <laughs> not me. Yeah. So, so I would say this: when you look at the averages mm-hmm. of what people need, you can start to talk about people are meeting most of their own needs on their own. But of course, that's a dynamic, right? There's some right. people much worse off than that, and some people significantly better off than that. But on average, that's about right. Well, the reason I bring it up is to show perspective. That, you know, we've only been at this for about one generation, and we've made more than 50% progress, and families, of course, are doing all they can do themselves. So it's, it is every religion in the world, but it's also the people who are food insecure are trying to solve it themselves. Yep. And I think that's a perspective that needs to be demonstrated. I think so, too. Uh, and so all of these things, right, the way that this conversation can be had that not only encourages us, but points us toward the real success that's happening in our community. And we can't lose sight of that success because once we do, we can start to feel hopeless. Well, it's time for a little food for thought on that thought. The work of creating food security, of taking hunger off the table for innocent children and stressed out seniors is big. Sometimes it seems overwhelming. And then occasionally someone comes along and looks at us. They say, oh, my God, you guys are thinking differently, trying new innovative ideas, creating solutions, and it's great. And we look at one another and go, we are? (laughs) Sometimes it really is true. You can't see the forest for all the trees. That's why Paul W.'s interview was great. He helped us see that we're making tremendous progress. Great things are happening across the state and each of our seven food banks who are thinking different and better about this work. We are trying new programs and pilots and developing partnerships that lead us to even greater conversations about how to come alongside working families, students, and seniors. From farm to fork, we are working to solve hunger by creating food security. It's hard work, but it's well worth doing. I'll leave you with the words of St. Francis. Start by doing what's necessary, then what's possible, and suddenly you are doing the impossible. Thanks for listening. Catch up on all our shows at foodsecuremichigan.org. Follow me on Twitter at DrPhil14. And until next time, remember, it's food first, folks. Food first. Food for Thought has been a presentation of Farm Bureau Insurance of Michigan and the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Creating a food-secure state.